welcome to Playmakers. I'm your host, Jordan Blackman, and this is episode six, where I interview award-winning writer and narrative designer, Ed Cannell. You know, on every episode of Playmakers, what we do is we interview an expert at some part of the gaming industry, something to do with either the creative, the development, or the business aspects. And we go deep on that subject so that you can break out of the box that you're working in and achieve new levels of creative and business success. This is a great one with Ed Cannell. More on it after the little cool noise that's coming up. That was the cool noise. It was cool, right? Okay, episode six, Ed Cannell. Ed is an award-winning writer. Valiant Hearts won the 2014 Game Award for Best Narrative, and it also won an Annie Award in 2014 for Best Animated Video Game. So playing this game is part of why I wanted to have Ed on. The game just had an amazing tone, a great story, and some really cool characters and I thought it was just very ambitious for the size of game that it is it's it's a small it's a relatively small game it's a downloadable game and it's both ambitious and I think it does a great job of achieving those ambitions and having worked on games where stories are told in small chunks I know what a challenge that is and I know what Ed achieved in Valiant Hearts so we talk about that and we get into some structure stuff because Ed, in addition to Valiant Hearts, in addition to working on Leisure Suit Larry, in addition to working on Hunter the Reckoning, I want to say Hunter the Gathering, that's funny. In addition to those games, he also has done some work with Telltale Games, and we talk a little bit about what he learned there as well. Now, I had made some games with Telltale when I was at Ubisoft, and Ed and I had actually worked together on some things in the past as well. So we had a bit of a rapport, and you'll see that when we get going. Ed reveals some personal stuff about his past and his history and how he got into writing in games. From there, we dive into a pretty detailed discussion about story structure and how to design a story that's going to work with your gameplay. And Ed shares specific frameworks that he uses to craft great stories that will work as games. Now, I'm going to take a lot of the stuff that Ed talks about in this episode and turn it into a handy story cheat sheet that you can use. You can find that at playmakerspodcast.com. Go there and we will have a cheat sheet in the post for this episode for you to download. And uh, I'm going to leave the intro short on this one. Here is my conversation with Ed Cannell. Ed, thank you so much for coming on Playmakers. Yes, thank you for having me. Good to have you on the show. And I wanted to start by just learning a little bit about how you got to be you, how you became game writer with over 50 games under your belt. Well, let's see. So my particular path it sort of went like this. I always wanted to work in games or in something creative, like animated films or, or something. I'm 44 now that like when I was 15 or 16, I'd never heard the phrase game designer. I don't know that it was being used at all. I just knew that I had no talent at all as an artist. And I think I even kind of knew that just programming was not going to be where I was going to see a lot of success. But I played some of the early um, LucasArts adventure games made by some of my, um, I guess, by some of my heroes in the game industry, like uh, Ron Gilbert, you know, and I'm talking about Monkey Island and those games. And you could play them and they were funny 
and they were cool. And you could tell, well, somebody had to come up with these jokes. Somebody had to, you know, come up with these puzzles or these challenges for the player. Somebody had to kind of put this all together. And I didn't know it at the time, but that, that somebody was, or somebody's was Tim Schaefer, who now uh, runs Double Fine. Uh-huh. And Dave Grossman, who for a long time was the creative director at Telltale Games and is now with a startup called Earplay. And Ron Gilbert was uh, sort of, I, I don't I think this is accurate, he's kind of like the creative director on some of those games, and he's still out there making games. And so I, I guess I, I kind of knew what I wanted to do from an early age, but had absolutely not a clue how to get there. You know, and I, I grew up in Portland, Oregon, where there no game industry, no film industry, no television, really nothing at the time. But also I, I had, I think, uh, even as a kid, you know, I, I lacked a lot of confidence and I didn't have the confidence to, to like, you know, say, this is what I want to do and I'm going to, darn it, I'm going to do it. You know, I had, I had a lot of issues as a kid with depression and I was already on my way to forming an addiction around some coping mechanisms. And my parents, you know, God bless them, uh, they're, they're great people and I have a good relationship with them now and they always, I think, you know, did their best. But they were not the kind of people where you could say, hey, I want to, I want to, <laughs> I want to work in video games and I want to, I want to have this creative job that just was not going to fly. They're from New York originally and they were, you know, they came, they came from a blue collar background themselves and that just didn't make any sense to them. Yeah, I think for that generation, they don't, re didn't really understand games as a career possibility. It was just a nuisance, you know, sometimes they'd have to shell out some quarters so that you could play games at the, at the red robin while you waited for your table but uh to make a, a long story slightly less long i finally figured it out and at about age 29 or you know my late 20s i was in chicago where they did have a small game industry and i was just happened to be walking along i had this kind of this dead-end job that i hated but and i was walking along and i could see the offices of Bungie, you know, at the time Bungie was in Chicago, they'd yet to be bought by Microsoft and they had made some really cool games pre Halo, actually, that I really liked uh, the myth series. And I don't know how, but I could tell this was with their office and I could look inside and I could see, you know, all these people and how cool their desks were, and all these cool posters and video games and toys everywhere. And I thought, you know, why not me? Why can't I? I figure this out. Why, why can't I, I, I get there? I'd always wanted to do it. Why did I, why did I just give up on that? So I started kind of positioning myself in such a way that I would be a good candidate for a job. And I, I took some object oriented programming classes thinking at least I could maybe learn enough to, to be able to talk to programmers competently. And I would start taking industry people to lunch and asking them, you know, questions and, and just doing whatever I could to position myself as a viable candidate. And I got lucky when high voltage software in the burbs there, Chicago was hiring for an assistant producer on paper. Anyway, I was, I was maybe slightly overqualified, but I think I won them over with, you know, my passion and, you know, me wanting, you know, the job so, so badly and already being there in Chicago. And, that's where I got in. That's where I broke in. And um, I spent five years there. And then afterwards, you know, I, I was able to, to make sort of the sneaky lateral shift to a, a more creative role. What games are you working on at High Voltage? High Voltage was, uh, uh, you know, as a producer, Hunter the Reckoning was a, oh, yeah. a 
general Xbox title that I, I didn't have much to do with aside from, uh, you know, again, being an assistant producer. I remember it being reviewed well. For the studio for the time, it was maybe their biggest success. And again, I did not have a large hand in it. But uh, we then we made a, uh, a game for the PS2 uh, for Disney Interactive based on the movie uh, Lilo and Stitch, which was actually pretty fun. And that was my first foray as a, as a game designer. And then I worked on Leisure, closed out my career there with Leisure Suit Larry Magna Cum Laude. Nice. Uh, the second to last Leisure Suit Larry game, one that certainly helped bury the franchise for <laughs> final nail in the coffin. And but there's no way. That's not buried. That's coming back. After five years there, you know, uh, learning everything about, you know, how games are made. That would get kickstarted in a week. Well, I did, and in fact, that Al Lowe did kickstart what was mostly, I think, a, re, a reboot of the first one with, with, with some added content. And maybe that was the nail in the coffin. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so five years there, got laid off, moved back to Portland and... Thought that was it. That was over. In fact, I took a full-time job at a company called Gerber Legendary Blades. When I moved back to Portland, I tried everything I could to get a, a still stay in the game industry. And you know, but again, the, the, there was still no industry in Portland, and um, I, I, no, nobody was wanting to hire me for like a telecommute or, or anything like that. So I really thought my career was over. It was really resentful because I, I just had spent five years putting my heart and soul into a career that just in, in Portland, Oregon did not exist. And, you know, and uh, felt like I just wasted five years of my life. I got a job at a company that made knives for hunters and for the military and spent two years – Gerber the Reckoning. Gerber, yeah. Spent two years going to like trade shows, including going to the NRA, you know, uh, <laughs> going to the annual NRA. <laughs> I cannot imagine you at those at those trade shows, man. Which, which where I met uh, Ted Nugent. I got to meet Ted Nugent. It was one good thing about, about working there. Besides, you know, they gave me a paycheck. But I got to meet Ted Nugent at the NRA conference. And he has a son, a metrosexual son named Toby. Which surprised me. Yeah, I would think that Ted Nugent's son would be, you know, like Harley or Tap, Buddy. <laughs> but he has a son named Toby who does, does not look like uh, him at all. But anyway, thankfully, I, I, I started getting pinged for freelance jobs from people that I'd, I'd networked with or met. And it started to snowball. Eventually was able to quit and do this full time. And for the last 10 years, I've been very busy working full time. And I've worked on a lot of games, uh, as you pointed out, because as a freelancer, it, it, it's, you know, you get pulled onto a project, you work for a couple weeks, couple months, and then when they're done with you, you get to move on and you can, you can, you know, sometimes work on multiple projects. And it's really fun and exciting because I, I think I've worked on almost 60 games now. Wow. And, uh, you know, the, the diversity is of, of projects is is wonderful. Working with different people, that's part of what's really exciting is, you know, things are, are fresh. That's kind of how I got to be here. You did ultimately get the chance to work with Dave Grossman, right, over at Telltale? I got to work with Dave Grossman while at Telltale. His people had hired me. Yeah, I got to interact with him, and I got to work for Telltale. What, what happened was... While at High Voltage Software, Dave Grossman and Noah Falstein, two two of these you know people who worked on games that that made me want to be a game designer, 
They were both freelancers at the time, and we hired them. They came out to High Voltage, and they kind of let us in on the secret sauce of how they would plan uh, narratively and, and structurally plan out one of their games, like a Monkey Island or something. Well, now that you've said the phrase secret sauce, I'm going to be spending the rest of the interview trying to get the secret sauce. It's nothing too crazy, but I mean, they basically showed showed us like, here's the process of how we would put together, you know, a really cool sort of interactive story. So I got to spend, you know, a week learning from these guys, which was awesome. And then later, when Dave Grossman became creative director at Telltale, I got to use their process for him, for Telltale, and, you know, get better at it. And I applied it to to most, if not all, of my my other, of the 60 games I've worked on. And that's another privilege of, of being a freelancer is, you just you, you get a lot of chances to sort of get better at it, make mistakes, get better. You know, like a screenwriter is hopefully writing has written dozens of screenplays, and you know some of them aren't going to be great, but it doesn't matter. It's just, it's just it's the repetition and the, is how you get better. And instead of working on one game for two years and then you know seeing it ship, I get to put this process in place and and do it over and over and over again. I want to hear more about the secret sauce and more about the learnings. But before we get to that, I want to ask you a little bit more about what are some of the projects? What are some of the the games that have shaped you as an interactive writer and some of your favorite stories? Well, certainly, you know, I mentioned some of those early uh, what we call point and click adventure games made by LucasArts. Maniac Mansion, the there was the Indiana Jones. Yeah, or Grim Fandango was a real oh, big yeah. one. Day of the Tentacle. Yeah, I mean, those for me had everything I wanted in that they were funny. They were sort of intellectual, intellectually stimulating they told like a, a a cool story, but but one that didn't take itself you know too seriously. Nowadays, I'm I'm still a, a, a Telltale fan. You know that they're different in in that um, I don't think Telltale even refers to them as games. They they call them I think cinematic experiences, but they still feature some amazing writing and and storytelling. And 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 I I still play almost everything Telltale makes and get inspired by it. You know, the Walking Dead series was was really great. So it was. Uh, Fable, the series they did based on the comic book, you know, Naughty Dog, um, The Last of Us is, 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 is a, you know, I, I thought a great, a great game and a great story and not necessarily like, you know, th- this is the best story you're, you're ever going to hear about a zombie apocalypse, but just competent merging of gameplay and story into just a really highly satisfying experience. I think it's one of the best single-player stories I've ever experienced in a game. And I think it is that way, again, not because they somehow reinvented the wheel of, of interactive storytelling, but it's just the characters feel three-dimensional. The, the dialogue is is great. It, it, just, it just feels very competent. It's like, you know, this is how, you know, big-budget games should be doing it every time, right? I think they did an amazing job of picking a world that, would let them tell a story of these characters. It's it's almost like they, you know, realized some of the issues they had with Uncharted mm-hmm. and designed a, a, a story in a world that would make those a lot more palatable or turn those weaknesses into strengths. So much of, I think, good game writing is that you have to do, do so much in the way of intricate planning to, to make sure that um, you, 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 you are able to tell a great story. And I think Naughty Dog recognizes that, you know, action adventure 
action adventure makes for a great game. It makes for a great story. You just have to, you know, intertwine the two well, and you're in good hands. But and and, and but then so many people in games don't do it well, which is baffling, right? Like games are all about action and games do action and adventure really, really easily, really well. So you you, sh- you know you should be able to then tell an act you have an action adventure story paired with with an action and adventure game mechanics. It, there's there's almost no excuse not to be good, if not great. I think a lot of studios have trouble really knowing what they're trying to do as a group, and Naughty Dog clearly clearly doesn't. I mean, one of the things that comes to mind for me is like in the opening, I, I don't remember the name of the, of his daughter. I don't really remember the name of any of the characters, but the daughter, you know, you, you actually play as her for yeah. the entire opening sequence. And and uh, spoiler alert, she dies. But playing as her first really makes you assume that's not going to happen. It's part of what makes the story work and makes it so affecting when, when that surprise comes. It's not much storytelling and also character development, which, which we're really short on in the game industry. We don't take time to flesh out our, our, our characters and make them unique individuals. We barely have time to spend with them before production starts. And that's why so often they're paper thin and, and they're almost more like amalgams of, of different characters, you know, cliches than they are fully fleshed out people. Right. Cause at least with a cliche, you can quickly get the, the player to understand who this is. You can. I mean, I guess there, there's, there, you know, there's some advantages to just, you know, here's your grizzled space marine. <laughs> you kind of know what we're in for. I think it's mostly laziness, you know, it, or, or laziness or, you know, if you, and in a way, you know, ignorance. I mean, and not that I, I, I am, you know, a master at this or anything at all. I had to learn kind of the hard way, like like every other game writer, I suppose, who, who didn't have a formal education in creative writing. It's we're just in a hurry. We want to get going, and so you know, who should be your main character? I'll just how about you know this grizzled space marine, and his name is you know Lance, you know Firestorm, and okay, here we go. <laughs> production starts next week let's not think about it too much further but it, it's interesting when you when, when you're in your room maybe with a creative director at a, at a game studio and you get to know them and you get to know like what their 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 favorite films are or their favorite comic books or or favorite you know novel you know sci-fi novels or whatever almost always all those things all those things that they love about a particular film or, or something is is because you know the 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 author or the filmmakers spent a lot of time figure out who these characters were and who they are and what makes them special and unique and different and what contradictions that they have and and where they're from and um, very few people in games I think do that but I think Naughty Naughty Dog does and I think like Telltale Games does and and a few others and that's why their their stuff stands out you know ahead of the pack. When it comes to storytelling. You know, one, one thing that's interesting as you kind of list out those studios is they're all studios that tend to make their very specific kind of game and not be like going from genre to genre or really being incredibly innovative on the gameplay side. And I think that maybe that structure helps them too. Sure. I mean, I think, you know, studios always benefit from constantly trying to perfect games of a certain genre. You know, maybe like if you have a writing staff, and, and you've hired them based on their ability to tell cool action adventure stories. It's probably a good idea not to 
pivot and, and try to have maybe have those people do something that they're not great at because you know different different writers are good at different things and, and people have some range but it, it's just not uh it, it's it's interesting i mean there are you know in talking to clients or prospective clients they tend to think that maybe a good writer is just a good writer and can do almost everything but it's just it's not so you wouldn't hire aaron sorkin to do saw 11 right yeah and and, and you know i i'm not terribly great i'm i'm finding out more and more i'm just ter- not terribly great at at straightforward like science fiction or high fantasy. I'm, I'm not great at it, which is unfortunate because I like that stuff, but I'm, I'm not good at it. Let's talk a little bit about Valiant Hearts because I think that's that's a really cool story. And also one of the things that I think is amazing given what we're talking about, about the challenges of crafting a good story, that it's a it's a pretty small game, right? I mean, it, it I think it was originally conceived of as a downloadable kind of XBLA style game. It was going to be episodic. Oh. And each episode was going to focus on one of those distinct characters. So you had, uh, you know, the, the, a woman who was Belgian and was an ambulance driver. Is that Anna? Uh, yeah. And uh, you had uh, an American soldier, which was a bit of a stretch because America didn't get, get involved until pretty much the end of that war. You had, I think, uh, Meal, who was uh, the, a Frenchman potential son-in-law who who was who was drafted against his will into the german army he had a daughter and then there was going to be another one who didn't i think maybe he has a cameo in the game but he was mostly cut and that we had a british aviator they're all implemented with with so much panache you know and the the international aspect is really a fun part of that yeah valiant hearts is it's just one of the coolest for me just most fun coolest things i ever worked on and and it was the one and it was one that really challenged me you know i tend to focus on lighthearted stuff or even just you know straight out comedic stuff and i tend to be pretty good at it i tend to do pretty well with it and i do a lot of it and i can maybe there's a little bit of uh, I don't want to say that I, you know, I, I think I work hard, but um, maybe there's just, just a little bit of comfort there or arrogance from like, yeah, I got this, you know, I got this, no problem. I, I can keep the jokes going and, and, you know, no problem. And then you get to something like Valiant Hearts where it's, you know, a serious story and, and the studio, uh, Ubisoft studio and Montpellier has made some great games in the past. This really meant a lot to them, this game, because this for, for them, this is their war. You know, for America, for us, it's World War Two. For for them, it's World War One, And we, they were coming up on the 100th anniversary of the war, and they decided, hey, you know, if anyone's going to make a game uh, about World War One, it's got to be a French studio. I think their superiors maybe in Ubisoft Paris were, were, you know, were understandably not necessarily – super thrilled i mean you know uh about the the commercial viability of a of sort of an adventure game centered around world war one so here they are they're making this game i think they had started with somebody else and it just didn't work out for whatever reason so they they uh had myself and and matt enton with whom i've done a lot of work with in the past fly out to montpellier and um help them so i did what i do with a lot of clients Except this was this was just much more much more difficult. But basically, we 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 all sat in a room together, and we had this giant whiteboard, and we basically plotted out the entire game in flowchart form. I've seen you do one of those on a project that we worked on together briefly, so I have some sense of what that might look like. So it looks just like this. So and you start from the end, 
you, you decide where this thing where where this thing's going to end, and then you work backwards. And you. De- I feel like we're getting a little secret sauce right now. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, this is what Telltale taught me to do. You start with the ending, going backwards, and uh, deciding. You know, okay, in order to get to the ending, what has to happen? You know, immediately before that to, to we get to the end okay so you've got that step down now what has to happen before you even get there what's what's the immediate step prior to that point and you keep working backwards you have all these branching branching points where you know the player can make, maybe make different decisions that affect different things and so you come away with this big just ugly looking horizontal flow chart with all these twists and turns, but it helps immensely. It's the, the structure of your game, the backbone of your game. With Valiant Hearts, it was harder because uh, we had these four or five char- playable characters, who, all of whom, and you take a turn playing all of these different characters, and their their lives needed to intersect at certain points. The game needed to cover the entire war. So from like 1914 all the way through 1918, we were going to hop, skip and jump. Were some of these decisions made back when it was originally conceived as an episodic experience? Uh, yeah. yeah. Even when we were planning it, it was, it was still going to be episodic. It does make sense to me of some of what the game is doing, knowing that. Yeah. We were going to hop, skip and jump through four years of World War One. Four playing, f- what, five different characters whose lives needed to intersect at points and, you know, and branch off in others and we had to stay true to history so we couldn't just say oh yeah there was like a, like a battle here and and you know the the french were going to win it no we, we didn't we didn't want to they didn't want to play with any history we had our we had our books out and we were like okay on this date this incredible thing happened and we want to be there for it and and so how can we incorporate it into our timeline in a way that uh honors history and at the same time you're just you're trying to tell an entertaining story it was a pretty daunting challenge, but we just sat there in this conference room every day for a week and uh, did a, an episode per day um, until everybody was happy with with the with what we had. And uh, it was it, you know, by the end of it, it was it was exhilarating. So, is it sort of like a five act experience then? I suppose so. It's been a while since I played it. I mean, of course, I played it when it came out. They had they had cut one like I said they 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 cut a character from from it and cut um, his episode so to speak. I'm not sure you know structurally I I'm not I'm not sh- I'm not sure I'd have to play it again to kind of see if that holds true. But um, it was certainly a different experience just having it be one game instead of instead of be episodic. Of course, when when you leave and you go away. We went back, we, we, you know, we, Matt and I went back home. We were then writing scenes. Uh, there's not much dialogue in the game, but we're still writing scenes and writing things like letters from uh, soldiers to home from the front. And meanwhile, the team, you know, they, they're they're developing this game. They've they've got to make changes. So, you know, it went from episodic to just being, you know, one, one experience. And, um, you know, they have to make other structural changes based on, who knows, you know, cuts to levels, schedule, um, new features, you know, just rethinking things, stuff like that. It's par for the course. But but the end result was pretty close to what we had worked out with them, and I was really excited and proud and happy to, to play it. It's a great story, and, you know, it's this relatively small game that feels epic. And and knowing that it, that it was episodic kind of makes sense of, of the – you know, the story being pretty, has a lot going on. 
but also, yes, somehow it manages to have real emotional impact with these characters who don't, yeah, like you said, don't even do that much speaking. And, and it's pretty incredible. Yeah, the talented group in, in Ubisoft Montpellier. Yeah, I wish we, wish we could have done more, you know, <laughs> with Valiant Hearts. For me, it's just, it's also very cool in that it, it, it's just one of those games that I've had a few of these that really take me out of my comfort zone. You know, there's a theory that if you're good at comedy, you're, you're also going to be good at, at drama if you push yourself because there, there are two sides of that same coin. That's mostly true. Although I like, I like doing comedy because it's easier. Value Hearts pushed me out of, my, out of my comfort zone, and I'm grateful for that. I'm really excited that you've given us a little bit of the secret sauce because I want game stories to be better in general. And I hope people, you know, caught on to that starting at the end and, and working backwards bit. I would love to hear more about the kinds of rules, structures, tools, and processes that you use to to craft stories that you think are, are effective for crafting stories? You know, I have my process that I, I think works for me and I have seen it work for, for my clients. And that is, you know, we, we, we got to make sure that we have a story. A lot of my clients come to me with a, an idea for a story or a story summary and they confuse that with having a story. So they contact me and we may start working together and they say, Okay, well, we have a story, and the story is there's this guy, and he, you know, is like a dragon tamer, and then a bunch of stuff happens, and then he uh, fights this this bad guy who we're not sure is what his name is, and then he dies, and he comes back as a ghost, but then he kills the bad guy, and they're both ghosts, and uh, you know, something like that. <laughs> so you often say, "Where well, can I pre-order?" Yeah, you often say something, you often say, hey, that's a great, we got a great start here. You have kind of an idea for a story. You have some direction here, but you don't, you don't, in my mind, you don't really have a story, right? We don't have a beginning and a middle and an end. In order to start, I just use something. There's a book called Invisible Ink by Brian McDonald. That's just a great book for any writer uh, to pick up and read. Has this thing where he calls it seven easy steps to a better story. And it's a, it's a way to both simplify what you have, but also give it give it some real structure. And so he applies these seven steps. He says, "Okay, <clears throat> you finish these these seven sentences. Basically, once upon a time, blank. Okay, once upon a time, you had a dragon tamer, and every day, blank. Okay, every day he went about his business training dragons until one day. Uh oh, the beginning of Act Two. Right. This, I guess the inciting incident maybe or something until one day blank, something okay. happened. Right. And because of this blank. Right. And he throws in, she throws this in a second time. And because of this blank and you can keep doing that. Right. That's the sort of the meat of your story or, 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 or kind of know, rising for, action for a video game. It, we, we, we go on maybe right. And because of this blank and because of that blank and because of that blank and we just keep going. Maybe until finally, and you know, we're, we're warming up to our resolution until finally blank. And ever since that day, this is our resolution, you know, blank, finish the sentence. If I'd have been smart, I would have come up with like a really cool example for you. I actually have maybe kind of an example that I used in those YouTube videos, but anyway, maybe you get the idea. So you've got these, these seven easy steps towards simplifying your story and lending it some structure. You know, if you can fill in those blanks adequately, 
you've got yourself a story. And from there, what, what I would normally do is then expand on that to add more detail where necessary until I have a treatment I can be proud of and, and that, you know, everybody at the, the development studio can read it and look at it and realize, yes, this is our story and have confidence in it. And, and you can give it to any stakeholder and they can clearly and quickly see, you know, what the story is and what it's about. As a brief aside, it's amazing. I have discovered, I've seen firsthand, it's amazing how much morale hangs on having a good story. You know, when you have a developer who's working on a game that that purports to tell a good story, and if that story is a mess, that really, you know, some people think, oh, it's just a small thing. It's just a small aspect of the game. It's not that big a deal. It really has an effect on the morale of the team. And I've just seen this firsthand when you come in and you help them straighten it out and organize their thoughts and and lend their story some real structure and you know word gets out to the rest of the team. It's it's a huge confidence boost, and I think part of that is people then have just a much better understanding of why they're creating assets, why they're making these sound effects, why what this level should be, how they can help to tell the story, how they can participate, so that everything they do somehow helps to to push the story along. So we work with a treatment, and so do we, do we tell we we decide, okay, we have a real story, not just a vague idea for a story, but a real story, and that's great. But it's 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 of limited value to us until we can take uh, you know the game's mechanics and we can draw out you know a map on how to tell this this story, and so that's when we just getting back this middle phase, which I call which I consider to be narrative design which is essentially now taking the mechanics of this game, um, which may include cinemas or, or you, know, uh, you know, cinema would be like a feature of the game, and plotting it all out step by step from end to beginning in, in flowchart form, including all your branching and all your stuff like that. So all your, your major interactive and non-interactive scenes are known, identified, have a purpose. Like how are you going to tell the story you've just made a treatment for with the game mechanics that you actually have on hand. What's the player going to do step by step by step by step all the way to the end of the game? And how exactly how and when is that story going to be told and be pushed forward? It's kind of the heavy lifting, you know, it's 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 where game narrative designers shine and and writers I think from other uh other mediums struggle because the, if they're not if they're not used to doing this part. Afterwards, all what you have left is full knowledge of where, how, and when all your writing needs to take place for this game. And then you just, you, you, the writers can then go off and, and write dialogue while the rest of the team has this map. I can start creating the assets and features necessary to ship it. That is incredibly useful information about the flowchart, about these questions, and about that kind of narrative design process. One question I have about this, because I feel, I feel like this is the secret sauce, and I'm all about the secret sauce. With the kind of whiteboarding method, you work backwards. And with this invisible ink Brian McDonald method, it sounds like you work forwards. How does that play out for you? I mean, that's a good point. I think even with the, the story treatment, you could could start start with the ending and work backwards. But I, I guess just what's more important is not is not the, the order 
uh, or the sequence in which you fill in all those sentences, right? It's just that you need to have an answer there. Once upon a time, what? What, what was going on? And every day, what? Until one day, well, what, well, what happened? Maybe we, we tend to just think of in our DNA, we just tend to think of stories. You know, you, you think of the beginning first and you work your way towards the end. That's just how we're used to telling stories or hearing stories. But just what matters is that you can fill in those blanks. I love the idea of starting with the end because, one, video game endings are so often just incredibly bad. And unsatisfying. No one thinks you're going to get there. Like no one thinks you're going <laughs> to like. Hardly anybody finishes, right? Like they don't. They're oftentimes. I mean, it really is. Is sometimes the mindset is, oh well, who cares? No one's going to get that far. But the other thing is, when you know the ending, I think as a creator, your control now over the experience is much greater. You know when you're teasing and playing and prodding and foreshadowing and misleading. It is a map, right? This flowchart is a map. And like with, with, you know, when you draw up a map, you know, you need to know where you're going. You, you tell your phone, hey, I, I, I'm going to this address. And your phone brings up the map and tells you the best way to get there from where you are uh, or the most interesting way or, or the way with the least traffic or, you know, or whatever it is. You got to know where you're going in order to, to steer the ship there. Now that we've solved all our listeners' story yeah. – planning problems forever and ever. Welcome. <laughs> what are some of the pitfalls along the way? What are some of the mistakes that, you know, you're seeing in games all the time that you're like, ah, stop whatever, X, Y, and Z? I'm big now on character development. And again, it is something that we give the least amount of thought to. And I hear this from people who work at studios. You know, I, I, the other day I was talking to a colleague who said, you know, I, on the spur of the moment, wrote up a one-page character description for this important character. And his supervisor was not happy, like he'd wasted time. Mm. And it's just crazy because I guarantee if we sat down with that person and asked them about their favorite films, you know, so much work. George Lucas did so much work on Star Wars, on these characters. You know, imagine if you were just, you know, envisioning if he was envisioning the Darth Vader character and, and was, you know, was like, hey, uh, OK, so what's Darth Vader's background? How is he related? You know, how, what's his relationship to these other characters? Hey, don't worry about it. Just make him look cool. It doesn't matter. Hurry up. Go. You know, <laughs> like, I actually think we know what you would get and you'd get Darth Maul. Yeah, right. You just it just, you know, and I guarantee he's a Star Wars fan. I'm obsessed with this movie. There's very few movies I'll watch over and over again, but uh, No Country for Old Men. I've seen like 20 times. Really? And I think it's, you know, you can look at the way the Coen brothers draw characters. And if you're cynical, you can say to yourself, you know, there's just a lot of forced quirkiness here. But I, I, I don't think that's it. I think like they take the time even to make – like the lead character is constantly checking in and out of hotels, right, in this mm -hmm. movie. And they take the time to even make the hotel clerks kind of interesting. And I think it's because in their mind, this hotel clerk is not an amalgam of every hotel clerk in the world. It's, it's not a summary of, of a hotel clerk. It's an individual person. It's right. an individual person who's maybe cranky or maybe, you know, high or maybe they're, you know, they're, 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 so they're an individual person. And so all of these interactions are interesting. And of course the main characters are extremely well thought out. 
almost nobody does this in games. There's just, I think, a handful of, of developers that take the time to decide who are these characters. And, and you know, as if we get to know these characters, what, what do, you know, what do we, what will we discover about them? What makes them interesting and rare? There's, um, I don't know if you've ever heard this, but I, I read this in a, you know, I have a lot of books on writing and things and, and they talk about, I think Dustin Hoffman, when he was a young actor was one of the fruit of the loom guys. Mm-hmm. And I, apparently Dustin Hoffman, you know, he, he, he can be a bit of a ball breaker. I think even, even back then with directors and things. And, and, and he was like, you know, I'm not just oranges, I'm not not playing oranges. I am a specific orange. I am a singular orange. And what is, so what, what is this orange, this particular orange? What are they about? And we don't really do that in games. We just, you know, if you're a space Marine, you, you, you know, you're just every space Marine we've ever seen before. And we're just these top of the mind cliches or, are what we get most often. I think that's one of the things that is so great about, you know, the work of someone like Tim Schafer is you do feel that all the characters have been, you know, labored over and it's the craftsmanship piece, right? Like the characters aren't just serving a purpose. They're, they're also, like you said, individuals, they're created in their own right. And I, I think the, you know, to your point with Tim Schafer, I recall, you know, Psychonauts, his first game, Double Fine Made. Love that game. Adore it. I loved it as well. And I remember this story as he was preparing for this game and doing research. Uh, Friendster was still a thing. Remember I remember that? this story too. Yeah. <laughs> so he, he made Friendster profiles for all of his characters, major characters, minor characters, because he wanted to see which one of them, which one, which ones would get along with each other, which ones would not, uh, how they might react to one another. You know, who does that? You know, I mean, who, who does that? Uh, who takes the time to do that? Not, not very many people, but I'm sure it contributed to, to that game being great. And then just in general, you know, not a lot of time for research. I mean, people who work at studios are under the gun and, and have really tight deadlines and it's really hard and, and they don't have the luxury or the time to do the research necessary to make their dialogue, uh, sound, you know, as authentic maybe as it could be. Um, and and it's not a problem with every studio or every writer by any means there is good, good stuff out there. Um, indie studios, have the, you know the the, the Firewatch was great, and that's um, I think Sean Vanneman you know is a Telltale alumni. Story and the dialogue in that game was was, was pretty great, and uh, you know being independent, he could take the time to uh, do the research necessary to to make it great. So there's you know poor character development, not a lot of time given over to research. You know research is maybe considered a luxury. You know, I had this experience recently. I was working on a game with a culinary theme, and I had done a rev of dialogue on uh, maybe like a hundred different quests. You know, and it's one of these games where the where the where, you know the dialogue. You have an intro to the quest. You have an outro in between. Maybe you have a few reminders of what the player should be doing to solve this quest. But we're also trying to tell a, a, a good story. But my first rev of this dialogue was very much like, you know, hey, how's it going? Boy, we need to bake a hundred pies today. 
uh, I think there's a, a pie club is coming to the restaurant and, uh, you know, we got to make a hundred pies because, you know, the pie club is, you know, wants a lot of pies. And then, and then we try to tack on a little bit of like story development or character development on, on top of this. Right. And when I prepared for my second rev, I, I, you know, wasn't happy with it at all. And I, I told these guys, I'm like, look, in this game, the player plays a chef, right? It's your job. You're a chef. And, and what do chefs do when they, when they come to a restaurant? They, they cook. They don't need any additional justification for it. It's already their job. What do chefs talk about or cooks talk about at work? They don't sit there and talk about what they're doing the entire time. I'm chopping a carrot now. I'm boiling some soup now. They talk about their relationships. They, they get pissed at each other. They, you know – they uh, they complain, you know. They bitch about their employers or what. I mean, they're you know they're they're human. People. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and we don't need to explain why they're making pies. They make pies because you're a freaking chef. And um, I call it you know mission itis, where it's like you know everything's really focused. I, I hate to pick on games, and, and writing is hard. There's this game that came out. It's a really fun game. I almost finished it called uh, Dying Light. I really enjoyed it, but I didn't enjoy the story very much. The story literally has a guy – literally you drop out of a plane in, and land in the middle of this city. And uh, almost immediately, even though you're like a white guy who just landed in like this this uh, city in the Middle East where everyone is Arabic, you just drop out of the sky. And almost immediately you go to you know to where some people are and you're like – Hey man, let me let me do some missions. I, 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 I'm good at mission. Come on, give me a mission. Come on, let's go, let's go, let's do a mission. And and you could tell this whole game is written around like what it is you need to be doing. Like at that moment, it's like you know these convoluted uh, reasons why you need to go and and fix this satellite dish or kill this person or wipe out these zombies. And it's it's really boring. And I just kind of think like. You know, you, you don't need to to do all this. You just the guy's job is uh, whatever. You know, he's he's, he's a, a, a he, he's a runner. He's a he's an you know he has a job, right? And the job is justification enough for for doing all the shit that he does. And and what we should be talking about is stuff that's a lot more interesting. You know, yes, you have goals. Go go blow this up. Go set this something on fire. Go you know. Go shoot these zombies, but but most of what we're talking about should be stuff that's just a lot more interesting. But instead, we kind of spend most of the game talking about like what you should be doing for your job, you know, before, during, and while you're doing it. Again, with some more character development and some more thought, maybe we can avoid that kind of a, a trap. And it's not easy. My sympathies are, are with every game writer in the world. <laughs> How do you make you know clicking on pies or? Or growing crops about betrayal and love, and <laughs> but that's just the thing. Like you know, if you're playing like one of these farm simulating games, it's like okay, it's enough to say you're a farmer. You you, you don't we don't need a story behind why I'm watering my crops. You're a farmer. It's what you do. And if you don't water them, they'll die. You know, the story should be about who your daughter is running off with, or you know. 
You're gro- you're growing a bouquet for your daughter's uh, wedding, or the bank that's trying to you know uh, repossess your farm. Something something more interesting. I have had so much experience uh, struggling with that, uh, trying to trying to make great stories out of farming uh, on Frontierville. <laughs> and I've worked on some of those games too, and so I I, I feel feel your pain. And I think we did a pretty good job, actually. I think the the team was very good at it. It can be done. Any other things you want to mention about pitfalls? Part of my advice is is be you know, dogged. There are times when I'm asked to do you know a writing task that maybe on the on the onset seems like less than glamorous, uh, writing barks or voice calls. Maybe you know I've, I've been in this position a lot where it's like, okay, I need to have 15 things for this player to say. The same, I've worked on a bowling game before. Uh, 15 things, 20 things for this player to say when they roll a gutter ball and they need to be funny and they need to be short and they need to be in character. Okay. Cause this is, this character is like a unique character and that's really hard, you know, right? One liners that are short and funny and have personality and communicate that I've rolled a gutter ball. And so I, I think what I see writers doing is you, you just, you, 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 you bang your head on the wall trying to come up with 20 original things and eventually your, your soul leaves your body and, and the last, you know, 10 or 12 are just, uh, are not your best writing. Mm-hmm. And I totally understand that. And, and this is where some of my obsessive compulsive tendencies, uh, are, are help me is that I will sometimes, I will stare at that empty, uh, cell in Excel, uh, for 40 minutes if I have to. But I want to make sure that all 20 of them are short and are, and are funny and do communicate what they have to communicate and do have personality. If it takes me two or three hours, then, I'll, then I'll, that's what sometimes what I'll do. And sometimes it's just it just takes time. It just takes, you know, rolling up your sleeves and uh, – getting getting dirty you know or getting under the hood or whatever it it just sometimes it's just uh it just takes a lot of time and um but when when you do 20 of those and they are good and they are funny it's a great reward you know it's it's to hear them in the game and be proud of them and and have the rest of the team be excited about what you did and you know be dogged sometimes i mean work you know making games can you can also get into missionitis and sometimes instead of just trying to finish that list you got to take a break come back we had lev Chapelsky on the show one of the stories he shared was working on hot shots golf and coming up with they had like a team to do just these tiny little lines for like hitting a great shot or a bad shot and you know you never know what's gonna hit it turns out that like they had they had one of the guys when you hit a great shot go cream cheese <laughs> that was like one of the most memorable things in the game yeah that, that could happen i'm sometimes surprised by by what hits or or, or, or what doesn't with with barks and voice calls more often than not i'm not surprised pretty good sense of when you you know turn something in you know, what's good and what maybe could be better. But uh, <laughs> it's always, it's always, it's always a pleasant surprise when that, when that happens. You know, I think that speaks to your, your craftsmanship and your, your experience. Uh, I hope so. Experience for sure. You know, it's hard to get good at the craft of game writing. Like I said, there are some, some, some universities and things that you can go to and, and learn, you know, like USC or, or other places, but uh, we don't have a hundred years of history and, and uh, from which to draw from, like film, and and we don't, you know, 
there are some I, I haven't read every book on game writing and I have a feeling there are some uh, maybe a few good a few good ones out there but we don't have our save the cat that can just kind of get you started and uh, it's, it's just hard I, I'm, I'm again I'm lucky to have worked on dozens of games because not that many people get that chance and it's also what makes it so exciting to be in this field because we're still defining what it is that is yeah on the early onset of games is, is pretty fascinating. I mean, there's still people like some of the earliest people to, 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 to make games at all are still making games. Like they're still five and they're still making games and maybe, maybe not the very first generation, but certainly the, the, if we, there was a, a second wave of game creators, those guys are, are, are still making games right now. You can, you can, you can call them on the phone or, or tweet at them and, and, and they're still, they're still here. And, and we're already, and we're already getting into VR. It's just amazing, you know, or just how fast this industry changes and, and for how new it is. It's, uh, it's mind boggling. I have to tune it out. You know, I have to tune it out. I, I, I'm not big on technology. I just have to kind of focus on my job and, uh, let other people figure out how VR is going to change storytelling forever. Someone else is going to figure that out and I'll just, I'll ride their coattails. Cause <laughs> <laughs> and all you got to do is subscribe to playmakers. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> and we'll, we'll keep you up to date on it. Perfect. Thank you. Thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been great. I hope so. And again, my sympathies and hats off to any, anyone out there working in games, whether you've been doing it forever or if you're brand new. You can always uh, feel free to tweet at me, and I'm, I'm always happy to help anybody that I, I can help. And what's your Twitter handle? At Ed Cannell, E-D-K-U-E-H-N-E-L. My Twitter name is Danforth Mantooth. That's me. Excellent. Well, thanks so much, Ed. Take it easy. I hope you found the interview informative and useful. If you are interested in crafting great stories, I'm sure you did. If you head to playmakerspodcast.com, you'll find the blog post with all the information of all the resources that we talked about, including how to get in touch with Ed. And that's where you can download the cheat sheet that has the processes that Ed outlined for creating great narratives in your game. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss the next episode. That's all for this episode of Playmakers. See you in episode seven. Thanks for being a loyal listener to Playmakers. <laughs>